0: Good morning, church. It's good to be here. How is everyone doing today? Uh, oh, good. I just wanted to check, did anyone skip breakfast this morning? A few of you. OK, now this is the real, really important question is, is anyone prone to getting hangry? There's less hands, and I know you're lying to me. Because I, too, once believed I was invincible of the hangries. But it was my early married years where both my wife and I were in college and occasionally we would need to make a big shopping trip, go to the big city of Regina, spend all day there, try to get as many stores in as possible, buying clothes or whatever else we needed. And I was usually just more frustrated about how much money we were spending because we didn't have any money. So much so that I would really skimp, skimp out on lunch. It's like, we can't afford this, I'm not, I'll just, you know, the $1.69 burgers that don't exist anymore. Is, And every time we would do this, it would be like 2 o'clock in the afternoon and be like, oh, man, this day sucks. Like, it's just getting worse and more frustrating and awful. And it took a couple of these trips to realize that I actually don't mind shopping. Shopping's not the problem. I was just getting hungry, and that was affecting me. It's amazing how much our our physical state, our bodies, our appetites affect our minds and our emotional state. And, and it makes us wonder, at least it makes me wonder, because Jesus has spent a lot of time being hungry. I wonder if he ever got hangry. We're finding ourselves in the book of Mark, chapter 11. Uh, we've been going through a remarkable series, and uh, we're picking up Mark, chapter 11, verse 12. And it starts with this phrase, the next day... As they were leaving Bethany, I'm just gonna pause right there and explain what the next day was because we we kind of rearranged a few things as we've been going through the book of Mark to fit with the Easter theme. Uh, Yesterday was Palm Sunday in our context of this story. Yesterday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with people waving palm branches, singing, Hosanna, praises, our King has come, he is going to save us. And then Jesus rides into the city, he goes into the temple, and he just kind of stands and looks around. It tells us he looked very intently inside of the temple. But then because the day was late, he went back to Bethany with his disciples. And that's where we read, the next day, now, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Well, then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This is, this is a bizarre scenario with Jesus, isn't it? It raises a lot of questions for us. And, and like, did Jesus just oops a little bit? Uh, his disciples, you know, they heard and saw what Jesus did. And he's like, it's okay, man, we get it. We get hungry too. We'll just pretend we didn't see that. Guys, don't ask Jesus any questions today. He's just not in the mood for it, you know? It's pretty extreme, right? Um, If if Jesus was actually that hungry, couldn't he just like make figs appear? We've already seen the Miracle of the Loaves and Fishes. I imagine figs are a little bit easier than that. And and cursing things? Since when does Jesus curse things? Wouldn't it be more in his character to like make a dead tree come back to life and instead of seeing a living tree and cursing it to be dead? It wasn't even the season for figs. And Jesus, growing up in this region, should have known that. Also, Jesus is Jesus, and he should know these things. Should have known what to expect from a fig tree this time of year. But we also know this. Jesus is really good at being hungry. I mean, he went 40 days without eating food, and not even the devil himself could tempt him. Jesus isn't getting bested by a tree today. Jesus isn't... Kangri. Now, living up here in the north this morning, I said being Canadian, and then I was corrected that technically there are fig trees in Canada, just not in this part of Canada. So being in Grand Prairie uh, without fig trees in our backyards, we, we might miss something that was quite obvious for people who were living around the Mediterranean region at Jesus's time. Fig trees, like most plants that we know, uh, grow new leaves in the springtime and then later in the season, produce a ripe and mature fruit that's good for us to eat. But here's where fig trees are different. As or even before they grow their leaves, the fruit will start to appear. It's not a ripe fruit yet, but it is an edible fruit. And there's kind of a debate on whether it actually tastes good or not. It's kind of open to your preference. But in Jesus' time, the poor people would often come picking this unripe fruit from a fig tree as as nutrients, as something to eat. It It was something there. So even though it wasn't the season for figs, there should have been evidence on this tree that figs were coming. There should have been something that Jesus could have picked and eaten. If a tree had leaves but no signs of fruit yet, you would know this tree was never going to produce figs. The nation of Israel is often symbolized as a fig tree throughout the Bible. And Jesus is going to draw on this practical parable as he's bringing his message into Jerusalem. So, As Jesus curses the fig tree, Jesus is acting as a prophet. He's giving a sign of judgment as he's calling the Israelites to repentance. Those who look like a big, beautiful, leafy tree, but are fruitless. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard these and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now at this point, the disciples have got to be wondering, like, what has gotten into Jesus today? Yesterday, he rode on the donkey to Jerusalem with the crowd singing his praise, declaring his kingship. And today, he's killing trees and flipping tables. What did Jesus see the day before that compelled him to return to the temple and cause such a scene? Remember, just the day before, he stood and looked intently around at the temple. Jesus saw something that spurred this on. This isn't a burst of anger. Jesus is very thoughtful and intentional with the message that he is bringing. And he begins to teach those in the temple with this phrase, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is is drawing on uh, two distinct quotes from the Old Testament here. The first, this phrase, that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, where Isaiah tells Israel of God's heart, of God's intention for the temple and the ministry that it's supposed to provide. Quickly turning to the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, reading verses 6 and 7, it says, And to the foreigners, that is to the people who are not Israelites or not Jews, to the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's heart has always been for all the nations. And yes, the people of Israel were chosen as God's people, but chosen to deliver the message, chosen to be a blessing to all nations, chosen so that all nations might know who the one true God is. That was their mission, that was their task. And it was like that right from the beginning, right from when God called Abraham and established a covenant with him. He said, Abraham, you'll be a father of many nations and all nations will be blessed through you. Now the temple was the place of worship. And their worship, very structured, it's very rigid. And with that, it was very restrictive. There are set boundaries and only specific people could move into certain areas of the temple. And if we kind of picture the temple as like a target, you have the bullseye as, as the presence of God. That's where God dwelt. That's a place called the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was allowed to enter that. And then in the outer circle, you have uh, the court for the priests and the Levites to perform their, their ministry duties. And then one layer outside of that, you have the people of Israel who are welcome to come in and bring their sacrifices and bring their offerings and worship forward. And then the very last circle, the very outer courts of the temple, was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this was the place that for if someone who is not a born Israelite could come in and they could still participate in the worship of God. This is what Isaiah was talking about. But Jesus walked into the temple courts. Jesus walked into this court of the Gentiles, this court that was supposed to be set and reserved for foreigners to come in and worship. And what does he see? But he sees they've set up a market there. They've set up currency exchanges. they set up places for the Israelites to come and purchase things that they can offer a sacrifice and participate in worship. Now, just to clarify, this idea of a market was not bad. Actually, in fact, it was, it was very helpful and useful and convenient for people, because if you're walking from several cities away and you're trying to bring like, your sheep and your cows and all of your grains and your oils and whatever else you might be offering, and you, you need the local currency, I mean, how much easier would it be if, if you could just purchase it all right there, right? So this was helpful. This was good. Sometimes it was even necessary. But the issue was the location. They set the location for the convenience of the Israelites into the neglect of anyone else who might be coming to worship. They took up the space. Take that market. Move it out on the streets. It's still there. It's still convenient. It's still available for you. Make room for people to come and worship. Furthermore, Jesus uh, also says he didn't allow anyone to carry the merchandise through the temple courts because another level of convenience that they just kind of took the liberty of using was using the temple court as a shortcut. Now, you go into the city, you, you have a business, you need to buy some things, you're buying groceries for your large family, you, you have a heavy load to carry, and you're trying to bring it back home. Jerusalem's a big city, and the temple is a very large place. Now, if I have to walk around the temple... I'm adding a lot of steps into my journey with this heavy load. How much easier would it be if we just open up the gates and walked on through, take a shortcut, straight line at home? they were using this cord that was made for worship for their own conveniences. Let, let's turn our attention back to the fig tree for a moment. Jesus saw this tree from a distance. He saw these bright leaves that held the promise that there would be fruit or something for him to eat. But the closer he got, he recognized there there is nothing to eat. There is nothing of value there. Now, similarly, if you were a non-Israelite and you heard of God and you heard of where you go to worship God and from a distance you can see the temple and all this religious activity and the hustle and bustle going on, and it gives a sense of hope. But the closer you get, you soon realize that, oh... There's no place for me here. There's no room for, for me to come in and participate in worship. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So maybe the merchants were, were ripping people off, kind of, kind of like when you buy a water bottle at Disneyland. Rip you off. But more significantly, they had stolen away an opportunity for other people to come and worship. This phrase, den of robbers, this is Jesus' second quote that he's drawing from the Old Testament. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And in Jeremiah, Jesus, or Jeremiah, <laughs> Jeremiah is warning the Israelites uh, to, to repent, to turn back from their ways. Because they have become adulterous, they've become murderers, they've become uh, robbers. They've been breaking all of the Ten Commandments. But then the people of Israel will come into the temple and consider themselves safe, clean, pure, able to approach God. But there's no repentance. There's not even a request for forgiveness from the Israelites. The temple had literally become a den of robbers where people would go break the law, come back and hide in the temple. So Jeremiah, who was five 600 years before Jesus, prophesied against the Israelites doing this and say, Hey, let's look back and see what history has shown. Look at the city of Shiloh. Now, the city of Shiloh was where the tabernacle was first constructed once the Israelites entered into the promised land. And it lived there for about 300 years, but we see the same thing where the Israelites turned away from God, unrepentant, continuing on, breaking the laws of God. So God eventually allowed the Philistines to come in and destroy their army. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple. Thus, the presence of God left them. The Philistines destroyed the tabernacle. And what Jeremiah is saying is, look what happened there. You are repeating the same act, and this temple will also be destroyed if you do not turn back to God. And now Jesus, oh, and it was, by the way, the Babylonians came, took the Israelites into exile and destroyed their temple. But now Jesus, repeating this phrase, calling the Israelites a den of robbers, is saying, look out, here we are again. Because of the Israelites' disobedience to God. Jesus was making this prophetic announcement against the temple for their abuse of temple worship, for their neglect of the heart of God. The, the real issue is the people of Israel were preoccupied with temple rituals with giving little or no concern to caring for the hurting people in their midst. They were more concerned about their appearance of going through the right motions than actually fulfilling the ministry of what the temple was there to provide. So and history tells us that this temple that Jesus was talking about was also destroyed only 40 years after Jesus prophesied it. The Romans came in And took it apart. But at this point, God had already found a new dwelling place for his spirit to rest, and that is in the people of the church. We're going to come back to that thought in a moment. But first, it tells us that the people in the temple were amazed at Jesus's teaching. They weren't shocked. I mean, Jesus comes in and is flipping tables, kicking over benches. The people weren't shocked. The people weren't scared. It says the people were amazed at his teaching. The leaders. Well, they wanted to kill Jesus for it, but they were afraid to make any moves because they saw how drawn the people were to the teaching of Jesus. Because this is a ministry that makes sense. Make room for people to worship. There, there's more to this place than upholding religious appearances. Somebody is leading us to genuine righteousness. It says that Jesus stayed there until evening. He didn't come in, cause a scene, and head out of there He stayed and spoke truth to the message he was delivering. Reading further on in Mark chapter 11, verse 19 now, it says, when evening came, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem all day, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So here's what we can learn from Jesus' parable of the fig tree. Practical parable. This actually happened. Um, Jesus cursed the fig tree because it looked like something that should produce fruit, but it didn't. Jesus didn't kill something that was good, something that was alive. Jesus just spoke truth to what was already there. Jesus could see the roots of this tree. Jesus could see... The hearts of the Israelites. The Israelites were not grounded in a love or pursuit of God. They put on a show, but it had no real value. And there is so much more to who God is than checking off a list of spiritual practices. Now, Jesus wasn't only prophesying judgment on Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple, but informing them that, that there's going to be another relocation of the Spirit of God. It's going to be taken out of this temple and put somewhere else. And when the disciples draw attention to this withered tree, the cursed tree, and look for more of an explanation, this is what Jesus tells them. Verse 22, it says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Essentially, what Jesus is telling his disciples is, here: you think what happened with that fig tree was impressive? You yourselves are capable of so much more than that. And Jesus breaks it down into two components, faith and forgiveness. Faith. It says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Okay, so now our prosperity gospel sirens are ringing and raising red flags, right? Because it's passages like this that are so easily taken and twisted to say, whatever makes me happy... Jesus is going to give me, here comes riches, here comes the easy life. But Jesus never promised any of that in his call to follow us. Yet we have fallen prey to this vending machine type of Jesus where if I do X, Y, Z and insert my little coin, then I will receive what I'm looking for. But that idea falls into temple ritualism. Those are leaves without any fruit we've also erred on the other extreme, where we've been so uh, guarded and concerned and protected about we don't want to treat Jesus like this vending machine that we've just stopped asking. We've just stopped asking Jesus for things, for help. This idea of maybe, but maybe if I'm just good enough, then God will see me. Maybe if if I read my Bible consistently enough, then Jesus will bless me. Maybe if I do X, Y, Z, Jesus will care enough to provide for me. And we've also fallen into the trap of legalism, trying to pay for a gift that Jesus is offering us for free. We've missed the fruit. So where do we find a balance in this? How, How do we hold the tension of Jesus' instructions that, yeah, we can ask for anything, but fighting against our own selfishness? Fighting against our own independence. We've been in the book of Mark for quite some time now, but we only need to look back one chapter to see that Mark has been leading us up and building up to this point of teaching us how to ask Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at this story, this request of James and John. James and John approach Jesus and say, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And as Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? Essentially, they say, make us the best. We want to be the greatest. And then last week, Wes brought us through uh, the story of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus sitting on the roadside, hearing Jesus walking by, crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus calls him forward and, and responds the exact same way. What do you want me to do for you? And the story is still fresh for us. Bartimae says, I want to see. And Jesus heals him. In each story, Jesus offers the same question, what do you want me to do for you? But, But there's also an interaction that happened before this question came forward. How do you approach Jesus? When you have a desire and you turn towards God, what's your posture? James and John came in high and mighty. Do this for us. Demand. Bartimaeus submitting himself before Jesus, knowing the person of Jesus, knowing the power of Jesus. Have mercy on me. Submission. Now here's what I want to be careful of. Does this mean that if we use the right words, then it will be given to us? No because those are still bright, big leaves with no fruit. We're getting to the fruit-bearing part really soon. But first, I want to acknowledge this. In both stories, with either posture, they're still allowed to ask. We are allowed to ask Jesus. We have the ability, we have the freedom to ask Jesus. Our access to God is through Jesus by the Spirit dwelling within us. Our ability to ask in prayer is because there is a new temple. The Spirit of God doesn't reside in a building. The Spirit of God resides in every person who believes. We all have access to the Father. We can ask. All who believe have access to the Father. And with our access to God... Well, what are the things that we should be asking for? And I think Jesus is making it pretty clear throughout this story that we should be asking for forgiveness. The Israelites, their neglect of the heart of God, their abuse of temple practic- practices, showed that they were unrepentant and continued living in separation from God. But we know this. 1 John chapter 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if you believe that, it will be given to you. Forgiveness is given to you. But Jesus also teaches that we need to be forgiving others. When we're praying and making our requests to Jesus, if, he says if we hold anything against someone else, forgive them. Because bitterness, because unforgiveness Is a barrier to our closeness with jesus the appearance of religiosity holding on to grudges but acting like if they're not there the appearance of religiosity will not get us anywhere repentance and forgiveness is what leads to fruit and as we walk in step with god's forgiveness we will draw closer to god we will grow in our understanding of the heart Of God in a deeper way than what a temple ritual could ever, ever provide. When we ask in prayer, in prayer it will be given. When we pray, we are aligning ourselves with God. When we ask for forgiveness, we are acknowledging who we are before God, that His ways are the best ways. We've removed the barriers between us and God and we're transforming our desires to match his desires. Therefore, we're going to continue to grow in our understanding and grow in our practice of what requests we should bring before Jesus first. Because we're allowed to ask for anything. But there are going to be things that are more important to bring up first. And if we, if we don't, if we ask for something that's, maybe that's not in the will of God, if we ask for something that's maybe out of a line, kind of like what James and John did, we can be confident in this. We serve a loving God who is far greater than our own ways. He knows and He desires to give us good gifts. If you're not asking Jesus for something, ask. You are allowed to ask. If you're asking, but you're not receiving, I think Jesus is leading you somewhere deeper that you have not yet Experienced. There's something he wants to show you. When we shift our focus from keeping up an appearance to turning towards God in a posture of submitting to him, of drawing close to him, then the desires of your heart will be satisfied and you'll bear fruit beyond what you can imagine. We're going to pause for a moment of, of praying together. And as I lead us in a time of prayer, I'm going to bring a couple questions forward for us to consider and process. And then afterwards, Pastor Andrew's going to come up and lead us in our time of communion. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we give thanks to you because you have provided us access to the Father. Because you know our hearts and you have revealed your own heart to us that we can know you and that we can trust you. Jesus, what does my tree look like right now? Does it it have fruit? Are there only leaves? What are the roots looking like? Jesus, what is hindering me from being able to produce more fruit? To step in line with your character. Is there an area where you're calling me to more faith? Or is there someone that I have not yet forgiven? Jesus, we're so grateful that we can come to you, that we are free to ask of you, whatever it might be. Jesus, we end with this. We, we turn ourselves towards you, submitting ourselves unto you. Jesus, what is the thing that I should be asking for right now? Where are you leading me? What am I missing out on? Jesus, what should I be asking you?